there are these clues kind of sprinkled throughout creation that um, God is an innovator in a similar way that uh, we kind of imitate in our own practices, you and I, um, in living in that tension between chaos and familiarity. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is episode 14. My guest today is Los Angeles-based visual artist Linnea Spranzi. Linnea is a graduate of Yale University's School of Art with an MFA in painting. Her work explores themes of freedom through limitations by using her own guidelines inspired by the chaos theory and free will. Linnea's art carries a depth of philosophical and theological implications, which is absolutely mind-blowing. You can find out more about Linnea's work at makersandmystics.com. This is Chaos and Familiarity, a conversation with Linnea Spranzi. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I've been really excited to catch up with you, see what you're into with your art these days. And honestly, I got really excited because I spent some time reading over your artist statement and just through several articles that I found about what you're doing these days. And I was like, yes, this is going to be an incredible conversation. And <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for taking the time to meet with me. Um, I wanted to to start with a the opening statement from your artist statement, which I, I thought was fabulous. But you said, using strict rules... I construct images on the belief that limits have an eerie capacity to generate surprise, even freedom. And um, can you elaborate on that? Yes. Um, So I think that, you know, being caught in the flow of human experience and certainly of the cultural moment, there are a lot of inherent contradictions and some are more benign than others. But I think one that is unexamined and maybe more pernicious than we realize is that we believe often that freedom means uh, a lack of defined limitation, um, that it means an utter lack of any restriction in every direction. Mm -hmm. And, um, The truth is that that reality tends to result in paralysis more than any sort of sense of liberation or energetic possibility. Mm -hmm. And a really powerful example of that is the scientific method or the whole means of scientific progress that we have been benefiting from for the past, past couple generations. I mean, that whole discipline of our cultural moment is predicated on the idea that we need really strict limitations. Yeah. Um, and it can yield incredible fruit while at the same time being humble enough to recognize its own limits of knowledge, right? Hopefully yeah. Yeah. humble enough. I mean, we make assumptions about science on a pop cultural level that no scientist worth their salt would ever (laughs) claim to be true (laughs) but that's i think more our problem than the the problem of the practitioners of of science because they're they've got their noses in it and oftentimes don't necessarily take the time to correct us and our assumptions about them but um that's a contradiction that is oftentimes kind of tucked away in our our 
general assumptions about the world that is a little bit problematic, I'd say quite problematic, and um, it has ramifications on the ways that we live our lives, the ways that we approach um, limitation, uh, often that's in a hostile stance instead of in an embracing one. Yeah. Uh, and most artists do recognize that limitation is an important part of their practice. Yeah. Um, and certainly the natural world has no problem working within limitation. In fact, it's essential to life. So that's my basic underlying premise and one that I'm very consciously working with as a tool in my practice. How would that practically work itself out into what you do on your canvas? Well, I mean, it's a whole method. I have a set of rules that I employ every time that I make an image Mm -hmm. and I work them all out. I decide on every single step that I'm going to take before I begin at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a a tremendous amount of, quote, foreknowledge Mm -hmm. uh, that is in place. And a lot of work has already happened before there's a single mark on the canvas or on the paper. So the way that that works out is that I get to enjoy an incredible amount of certainty Mm -hmm. um, as an artist at the same time that I cannot really predict exactly what will happen. And so there's a sort of voluntary restraint that I submit myself to Mm -hmm. um, in allowing the rules that I've made to direct what I'm going to do to the bitter end (laughs) or to the sweet end, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the case may be. Wow. I made this statement a few years ago. Spontaneity is the reward of preparation, not the result of disorganization. That's good. And that reminds me of, of what you're saying. Um, and I, I remember even in, in my own life growing up, I had that conception of freedom as just completely void of any limitation or rule. And it really bore more anarchy in my life than creativity, I think. Yeah. I mean, and part of part of the task of an artist is to be able to observe themselves and observe their own uh, tendencies and to be able to manage their own weaknesses. Mm. And it's the hardest part of being an artist um, because it's so customized. You can't go to a class that will tell you how you tick. Yeah. And so it's this it requires this toolbox of skills where you both observe and you problem solve and you experiment and then you, um, you know, gather your results and compare and contrast and see what works for you. And that's why it's even useful to hear from other artists about what has worked for them. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, these books out there that describe the work day of Bach, um, the work day of Washington, the work day of, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all these, all these notable people, and they have cracked the code of their own tendencies mm-hmm. and created limitations around themselves 
that are optimal in harvesting their own creativity. And that's really, I would say, the life's task of an artist because we also change. It's not as though the things that work in our teen years work in our 50s, you know, Um, because there are different great projects that we take on in life and they're worthwhile, but they inherently also create limitations. So you may be an artist that you know, has two kids and you have to sort that out, or you may be an artist who has responsibility to, um, you know, a car payment in the house, mm-hmm. or you may be an artist that doesn't, and you have to grapple with the sort of freedom of having absolute yeah. control over your time yeah. instead of other people bidding for it. So, you know, um, that's, that's a practical sort of necessity of an artist's life that few people talk about um, that becomes really uh, important once you're on the other side of formal schooling. So there's that. Yeah. Because formal schooling is also a limitation. But Yeah. You know, one of the things I've, I've read about your work is that within the limitations you set, you always find yourself surprised Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. I, well, it's such a risky thing to have in your possession a tremendous amount of formal training and then to entirely give it up to a process that seems impersonal and has no particular regard for all that formal training. Mm-hmm. Um, and to trust it to lead you into new territory. And it certainly is um, a strange battle of wills mm. to let another driving force into the process of making. And in some ways with rhythm, you know, you've decided on a, on a signature to your piece. Mm-hmm. And I've basically decided on a signature to my piece. Mm-hmm. And I find myself along the way having a will about it. Um, saying, wouldn't it be grand if it resulted in this sort of thing? I've got ideas about it. But then it has its own particular drive. And so there's a sort of beautiful tension Hmm. between my formal understanding of what could be a beautiful end result and then basically the desire of of the limitations that I've set. And I find myself repeatedly having to uh, remember my initial decision to submit over and over again. <laughs> and so I've sometimes ended up with canvases that when I finish them after, you know, two months of intense work on them, unhappy, uh, surprised, uh, uncomfortable, um, not sure if this is what anyone would call air quotes good or not. And I have to live with it and live with the unease. And many times, many times, at the end of living with it a little while, I discover that it has a kind of fresh angle and it sort of teaches me something new um, and expands my formal appreciation, Mm. if that makes sense. And so sometimes those canvases that initially I had ambivalence towards have become my favorite pieces. Wow. Uh, And not everyone has the same response. I also have a really offbeat 
sense of color that's purposeful. And sure, I know how to make pleasing color combinations. It's one of the basic things I've learned. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not, it doesn't teach me anything um, to do a harmonic that is familiar and I can easily repeat or do variations of in order to give people mm-hmm. um, instant pleasure. It's not, I want to learn and that's part of my responsibility to myself in order to increase the probability of longevity in my studio practice. Mm. I want to be making work when I'm 50, 60, 70. So it's incumbent on me to keep myself interested and hopefully not lose everybody in the process. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, like go ahead and make pieces that are uncomfortable to myself and possibly to others, but yeah. keep me learning. I think I've, I read a quote where you said, I don't require inspiration in order to work. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of the artists that I talk to, our relationship with inspiration tends to be a fickle one because we always love it when the muses show up and we're so into our work that we forget to eat or we haven't slept all night, you know, but then they're are those moments of repetition where it borders on boredom and how, what is your relationship with, with your discipline to work and then the moments of insight or inspiration and then just trudging, trudging through your own schedule? Oh, there's so much to talk about with in regards to that. First of all, I'm not sure that boredom is a bad thing. Hmm. I think that we have a fixation on entertainment and constant stimulation that is unhealthy to the human spirit. I would go so far as to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, the segues, the, pe- the, the kind of moments of transit between one excitement to another seem to be quite important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would feel much more... Um, comfortable and optimistic about anyone that is willing to transmute the word boredom into the word meditation or stillness or um, possibility for a kind of buffering in life, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Those moments between are kind of like batting that help us absorb and understand the moments of stimulation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no one really can lead a life of pure high-octane stimulation. It's, it's battering to us. Yeah. And I would say even in the studio, those moments when it's just work mm-hmm. are really peaceful and quite important. Yeah. And so I embrace them. And certainly if you look at my work, you see there's a lot of labor involved that is not that's almost machine-like. Yeah. And there is a kind of uh, meditation in that where my mind can slip into a different mode and be much more slow and think about what I'm doing or think about the future or the past in a way that can give a little more order to my creative life, Mm -hmm. my studio life. So first of all, I would say that that's a really important um, transition psychologically to make Mm -hmm. in your studio life where you aren't hostile to the idea of simply going in 
and putting in time and allowing your mind to slip into a state that's much more at ease because you're not making big decisions necessarily or overexcited, overcaffeinated, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, but then there are those precious moments of inspiration. The thing is, I find them to be so precious that I wouldn't want to use them as the basic drive to get myself working. That's good. Yeah. Um, I think they come in the process. They always do mm-hmm. when you're not looking. Yeah. And when you're busy working and suddenly you realize, oh, my goodness, I'm discovering something, mm-hmm. then you know exactly what, you're do, what to do because you're already in the harness. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I often... Um, you know, there may be times when I wake up really excited to work and that's wonderful. And some artists do use that as a way to keep themselves working. Like Hemingway used to, I think it was Hemingway who said he would stop in the middle of a sentence or, you know, halfway through a page, yeah, uh, right on the precipice in order to get himself right in the middle of a thought. Yes. Um, and that worked for him. I suppose I do the same thing in a way where I know exactly what I'm going to be doing next. Um, but it's often in a, in one of those meditative states. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then throughout the day I experience inspiration as I'm working and it dawns on me. It's almost like, you know, a a sunrise that's inevitable and slowly the sky lightens, you know, and, and you see it coming Mm -hmm. and it's, and it can happen during the entire studio day. So, I would say that inspiration is, it's important that you put it in its place because otherwise you're hostage to it. Mm. Um, And if you want to be an artist for the long haul, it's really dangerous to rely on it as your main uh, motivation for getting into the studio. When I look at your work and I think about your process of creating these set limitations to work in, but yet in inside of the structures and the patterns that that you create finding this freedom and finding this sense of surprise and i know you've even pointedly said it it's it's a very it has a very spiritual foundation to it um it it reminds me so apparently just of ideas of free will or um the chaos theory and how um design and surprise work together and I'm curious how has your art affected your own spiritual journey and then how has your spiritual journey affected your art how do those two things interrelate with one another um well I would say my work has taught me about how I as the maker of these things have to pour in constant energy. Though I may have the plans logged in my head, um, they will do no good to the thing that I'm making unless I am in constant attendance to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I have spiritually come to a place of tremendous peace in realizing that there is an analog to that in that There is a creator pouring constant attention into creation itself that 
um, there is a, the necessity for ongoing presence. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's deeply reassuring that there is a sort of necessity for that. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that's certainly come home through my experience in the studio as a, a deep realization that's settled. Um, and I don't doubt. So my work has actually created a, a sort of certainty that um, maybe other people would envy, but I recognize is just a fruit of years and years of practice and and, and thoughtfulness about my life. And that thoughtfulness, again, comes from this place of, quote, boredom. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Um, that just needs to be reframed. I think that, uh, those moments in life have been maligned by our over-caffeinated culture. Um, so at any rate, I would say that that's true. I would say that in this back and forth exchange between being thoughtful about my studio practice and about my spiritual life, I've also learned that um, though I may have a plan that is complete, and in many ways I can truthfully say I know the end from the beginning, um, there is a kind of posture of bated breath that I have about what the thing will yield. Mm. And though I may have often used the same system Mm -hmm. in many iterations, it has a new voice every time. Mm. And yes, I can know for certain that, you know, a certain system will not result in a piece that looks like exactly like a giraffe or like a, mm. <laughs> a landscape or, you know, a portrait. Yeah. Um, I can know those things for sure. So there are categories of knowing um, that are certain. But within that category, there's a tremendous amount of delight that's possible. Hmm. Delight of newness. Yeah. And I've thought about that often in regards to this kind of joy of repetition that creation seems to revel in. Mm -hmm. And even the thought of how many human beings occupy this planet. And if there's anything to the idea that God, the creator, has imprinted himself, herself, non-gendered self, whatever that is, into every human being, then there seems to be no end to that expression, mm-hmm. which says something about this being yeah. that's worthy of praise mm-hmm. and says a really beautiful thing about that being. Yeah. Um, so I revel in that in my studio. I revel in that spaciousness. Mm-hmm. Um and it has found a kind of synergistic peace between the rhythm and the repetition and the newness. So even in life, there are many times when being, being quote, spiritual, mm-hmm. taking up a posture of prayer every morning, which is a practice of mine, mm-hmm. um, I have a kind of optimism even about the times when it feels dull. I'm not dismayed by that in the least. I don't think that my spiritual life is withering at all. I think it's enduring. And that's one of the fruit that is listed as a kind of yielding of faithfulness, like that there's a sort of 
tendency towards endurance that's really beautiful. And I believe in that. Yeah. So uh, that's, yeah. that's kind of come from studio life as well. Yeah. And we move through seasons, right? So, and different environments and we change uh, so much. Like there are certain features that are really regular and familiar that I've been faithful to because I need them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but wow. Um, even this move to Los Angeles, you know, the last five years have changed me tremendously. Mm. Um, but there are certain familiar hallmarks that um, make it feel consistent. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. I, I, I know that um, you grew up in Oregon, and then I knew you when you uh, were living in Kansas City, um, and now you're in L.A. I've, I've been curious how those transitions have affected your work, or if they've affected your work, like how those differing environments, because I know from a rural part of Oregon to um, downtown, you know, Kansas City and now in L.A. and all that encompasses L.A., um, you're working in several different environments. How, how has that affected your work or changed your work? Um. Hmm. <laughs> or has it consciously? <laughs> well, it certainly hasn't consciously. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, we are synergistic beings and and we can't help but be responsive to our environments. Right. There's there is no doubt that we are deeply impacted yeah. by the worlds that we surround ourselves with. Mm -hmm. Even the angle of light, the quality of the air, mm -hmm. the ways that we are forced to spend our time, uh, you know, either in a car a lot or walking a lot or in the same homes or studios or, you know, and the, and the amount and quality of human interaction, all these things, they affect us deeply. Mm -hmm. And being oblivious to that does nobody any favors. Um, and... I think that there can be no doubt that there has been an impact on my work, but I have this through line of consistency of a certain way, of a certain sort of long-term project that allows those cataclysmic changes to still slot into a storyline, which is my studio life. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, certainly identity means that there is carryover from one context to the next. Right. Um, so while those changes have an effect on us, there is consistency. And my work, um, interestingly enough, if you line it up and I'm able to give a chronology to it, I think that I've been more interested in different systems at different times. And I think the cues for my interest in them have been um, handed to me through my environment. Mm. Um, and there's an interesting little anecdotal moment where the first piece that I made when I moved to L.A. Uh, was an incredibly furious piece. It's incredibly fractured. Um, it was ba based on a chaotic environment that was a kind of sooty ink. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was shot through with these neon kind of system that, was al that almost looked in the end like a lightning bolt 
or like flickering neon and it had these metallic elements and when I finished it I looked at it and I thought oh my goodness mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I've basically drawn my environment and in many ways my response to my environment mm. it um calmed down after that but that was my first piece that I made here mm-hmm. and there was kind of this subconscious decision uh in the little discrete moments of freedom of decision that I do have within my systems mm-hmm. where I I made choices that reflected the direct environment I was in I was right downtown my first studio was in the arts district on the edge of Boyle Heights which has uh, become quite an art hotspot at the moment but when I first moved there there was almost nothing mm. and it was just loud and hot and chaotic and everything you think about Los Angeles mm-hmm. um and I think that that showed in a few subconscious choices in my work. Um, I mean, there are more nuanced ways to talk about that. and then, uh, But that's one that just seems like a moment where I realized, oh, my goodness, it's actually leaking through into this <laughs> process that I thought was impermeable to these kinds of influences. Yeah. Um, <laughs> huh. Well, I had just a couple of other questions I wanted to make sure I got to ask you um, before our time is up. But one thing I'm curious about is do other art forms such as music or poetry affect your work or have a bearing on your work? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think a part of being an artist is... uh, being voraciously curious and certainly curious about other art forms and letting them fill you up um, in their own terms. And so, you know, I've, I've developed friendships that cross every boundary in art forms, you know, playwrights, writers, dancers, musicians, poets, write, you know, novelists, all of that. Um, and I come from a musical family, um, and so I listen to music constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't consciously imitate or mimic any of the tendencies or any of the tools that musicians use, mm-hmm. but so many times the people that have reacted the strongest to my work are, are uh, composers mm-hmm. who think about work, uh, music as... Well, as compositions, yeah. they they look at it from a macro level, and um, I think that my work has so many corollaries to that sort of view or that sort of reflexive tendency that people in that creative practice have. Mm-hmm. It's the way their way of perceiving, and it's certainly my way of perceiving. And so, there's a lot of resonance between composers and my work yeah also also practicing scientists which i find very gratifying yeah um and a lot of researchers um and so i think that i feel comfortable although it may be sloppy on occasion Mm -hmm. talking about my work as and using the language metaphor or using the, a musical metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, because I even think that, well, certainly poetry uses rhythm. Right. 
and uses kind of stark images um, layered on top of one another to create uh, startling connections that you otherwise wouldn't. And that's true of my work as well. I I think that I want to startle you Mm -hmm. and I want to, I very much have the goal of enticing you with a sort of near familiarity. Mm. You feel as though you've seen these sorts of images before, but you are not at all sure where, and they have a a kind of new or alien quality at the same time that they feel somehow familiar, I suppose. Yeah. And and I feel that that's true of poetry. I feel that that's true of music that's worth its salt and worth um, listening to repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Many times music that is my favorite at first offends me. And then that offense, I realize, is actually just newness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's what I that's what I want to accomplish in my work. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. As far as like other sorts of, of art forms, I, I, I constantly feed myself with that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the writers I think that interviewed you made a comparison to Steve Reich. And when she said that, I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. When I, when I listen to Steve Reich and then I think about your work, I can, I can see, a beautiful correlation there, especially um, his music for 18 Musicians. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Very familiar, yeah. Yes, I love that. Uh-huh. I, I absolutely <laughs> love that. But it, it yeah. does, I can see that. I, it reminds me of, of your work uh, in a beautiful way. But um, Funny that they, the other comparison that's really strong is Bach. And it's funny to me because stylistically you would think that those two musicians wouldn't belong in the same sentence, <laughs> but they absolutely do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You mentioned that some of your work has a familiarity to it, but yet at the same time, it has this newness or this alien sense to it. I'm, I'm fascinated with that only because in my own work recently, and this is a little bit revealing, but I've, I've been working on uh, what I hope to become a book that centers around the relationship between originality and likeness and how as artists uh, finding um, the pure expression of who we are, how that toggles between those two realms of familiarity and um, unfamiliarity. And I'm curious how much uh, those ideas play into what you do. I mean, I guess... C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. He said, anybody that bothers about being original will never be original. Whereas -hmm. whereas if you just simply try to tell the truth, nine times out of ten, you'll become original without having noticed it. Um, But I know at the same time, uh, we each have uh, this unique expression that's individual to who we are, unrepeatable, and how that expression finds its its way into communal life and with your art, how, you know, cause some of your ideas are very foreign. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a real question in that so much as I'm just, um, mm. curious how those ideas, um, play out, you know, originality right. and likeness. Well, I mean, I tend to think that the most 
fruitful, fertile zone lies between chaos and stasis. Mm-hmm. And that's another way of stating what you have said. Yeah. Familiarity is a kind of over-familiarity, is a fatal boredom. Mm-hmm. And then chaos is also fatal in its, you know, lack of cohesion. I mean, you simply can't live in an environment that's utterly chaotic, that we can't have a certain amount of, of, of predictability to it. We require that. But at the same time, on either end of the spectrum, it's toxic. And between the two is where life and dynamism is actually possible. And as an artist, your job is to steer a course between those two poles. And most of what's interesting is between the two, obviously. Yes. Uh, And even in society, that's true. Um, And you could take most of human experience and categorize between those two poles and map out our culture, Mm -hmm. map out your own personal experience, and map out your own practice. Yeah. Um, And so I think, again, the responsibility of an artist is to... is to look for the places that have been unexplored in the midst of that tension, maybe sometimes because the tension is so strong Mm -hmm. that many people don't choose it. Yeah. And I have a really powerful reflex that avoids crowds. (laughs) 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 For better or for worse sometimes, you know? No, I understand. Because there's a wisdom in crowds. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said that um, the democracy of the dead comes to us in the form of tradition, Mm. that every human being that has ever been is able to forward their vote into the future by creating traditions. And so traditions have merit and I give them merit. Yeah. But I have this deep reflex where I am just not interested in where crowds have been. Yeah. The trampled ground. Yeah. And it's so deeply entrenched in me that oftentimes I'm a very late comer. I'm a late comer to obvious truths <laughs> <laughs> because I have chosen, you know, that proverbial path less traveled. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, I've, I've made, I certainly have made discoveries. And, and for other people, it might take more training to decide to take the scary shadowed path that's grown over. Mm-hmm. But for me, I don't have to train myself. Yeah. Um, and so I think C.S. Lewis says, you know, that the truth is a good way to... Um, Results, you know, the fruit of truth is often originality, but not always. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. And I acknowledge that. I think that he would as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have a part of you that senses that the truth is often found down those, you know, weedy paths, Mm -hmm. then it's probably important to humbly take those paths. Mm -hmm. And what is a key word in that statement is humbly, yeah. because many times the crowds do have a sort of wisdom. Not always. They also have a kind of mania. Uh-huh. 
and madness that should be avoided. But uh, oftentimes those crowds tend towards one one pole or the other. Yeah. Right. They tend towards either stasis, boredom, a kind of lockdown, yeah. or a kind of chaos. Yeah. And so the pathless traveled often can lead you to that place of fertile tension. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful that I have a reflex, a kind of, for better or for worse, revulsion to crowds. There's a, I was looking, I think his name is um, Rabbi Kula, but he coined a phrase called flexible absolutes. Oh, that's good. I loved, I loved that term, flexible absolutes. And what you were saying actually about the crowds and then the path less traveled reminds me of your work. And then it, it reminds me even of this, the statement I made at the beginning where I said, um, you know, spontaneity is the reward of preparation and, and not the result of disorganization. At least in my own life, it would seem that when these structures are in place or when these even particular traditions, because I, I think some traditions are good and some are toxic, uh, some are living, some are dead, you know. And But I think that even like your art, when there is a structure in place, we have the freedom to explore uh, those weedy grounds until I guess one day those two will, will be beaten into their own path and then we explore elsewhere. But... I, I think your work teaches me the beauty between spontaneity and design. And I, I love seeing how that plays out in your work. Um, mm. I've loved keeping up with you over the years and even from a distance, just watching your work uh, change in ways and develop. And, and uh, you know, for, for those listening, Linnea also did um, a piece that we used for the Songs of Water Stars and Dust album cover. And so if you have our album, that's her work on the front of that. What, what was the name of that piece that you did on the Stars and Dust album? I'm trying to remember was if it, it was Pillar of Water or Pillar of Cloud. I can't yeah, remember. yeah. I think it was Pillar of Cloud. Yeah, mm. that was it. Yeah, but absolutely gorgeous piece. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. You know, I could talk all day and then you would hang up on me. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, I read this phrase that you coined called a theology of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was, uh, you were encouraging uh, specifically the Christian audience of artists to be artistic and cultural leaders rather than followers aping popular trends, but with an added Christian message. And I, I think in some ways that even goes to what we were talking about with the crowd mentality uh, and then the path less taken. Um, can you elaborate on that idea of theology of innovation? Yeah, actually, it's tethered to the basic idea that I mentioned where um, there are these clues kind of sprinkled throughout creation that um, God is an innovator in a similar way that uh, we kind of imitate in our own practices, you and I, um, in living in that tension between chaos and familiarity. And, and the clue for me lies in the fact, again, that there are so many human beings on the planet, and God says that every one of us contain a thumbprint mm. of his being. And if you think about a thumbprint, it certainly is the same basic format mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again, whirls 
on a certain size, a basic size, at a basic shape, with basic elements. But those elements are arranged in an infinite number of patterns that are each unique. And I think to myself, well, this God says that he expresses himself in every human that he has made. And if that be true, then there is no end to that expression. Apparently, there are billions of us. (laughs) And if that's true as well, then why do we insist on attempting to cloak ourselves in other people's expressions, in other people's innovations? Because what would be implied in that truth, in that logical chain, would be that each one of us has something particular to say about God, about our experience. And and not only do we start with a unique recipe and a unique identity when we are first born, but as we age and have experiences, it becomes even more peculiar, even more unique. And we have even more particular expressions to give. And as such, it is important for us to faithfully carry that expression of God himself into the world with faithfulness and newness, because I think it grieves God when we're lazy about it, because it's a unique gift that will only happen once. So that's what I think. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, Linnea, for talking with me. Before we go, I just wanted to let everyone know that the official dates for the next The Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Gathering is going to be March 17 through 19 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And you can look up more information on that at thebreathintheclay.com. Also, if you're an artist and you would like to submit your works for display in our art gallery, you can find out more about that at thebreathintheclay.com as well. This is the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm Stephen Roach. Thank you so much for listening. 